Let's pray as we begin our time together in the Word. Our holy God, we approach you this morning asking you to give us right understanding of who you are. Acknowledging that you have set the terms on how we approach you, we don't. Understanding that you alone are worthy and we're not. Lord, I pray that you would use the next few moments in your word to remind us what James sought to remind his reader of what a life looks like that's following hard after Jesus. And we believe that you are the one true living God. And we confess that you're not bored. We confess that you're not boring. You're not lifeless. You're not our divine butler. No, you are a towering tsunami of majesty and glory and life and passion and joy. You pulsate with beauty, with holy justice and eternal goodness. And so what we do now is not merely an empty duty. No, we want our hearts to know and to experience deep joy. And so would you please meet with us? Use the preaching of your word to meet with us and change us, we pray. I pray that we would be affected by our encounter with you. And so for your glory and for our good, do more with this sermon than I could ever do. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Growing up, I've enjoyed uh, the games of guess who I am, right? And so uh, you have an idea in your mind and you're wanting to uh, encourage people to sort of guess who you are. And so I'd like to start our time together asking you in your mind to guess who I am. I have no respect for justice. I maim others without killing them. I break hearts and I ruin lives. I'm cunning and I'm malicious. The more I'm quoted, the more I'm believed. I flourish in every level of society. My victims are helpless. To track me down is nearly impossible. I'm a friend of no one. Once I tarnish a reputation, it's never the same again. I've toppled governments and I've wrecked marriages. I've ruined careers and I've wreaked havoc on friendships. I generate grief and I love to cause suspicion. I make the innocent cry on their pillows at night. I assign motives. I leave others with a negative perception of someone else. I often masquerade under the guise of concern or a love for what is right. I thrive in a social media age. You let me reside with you more than you ought. And God hates me. God hates me. 
Who am I? I am slander. And because of its devastation, one of the chief tactics in Satan's strategies to divide relationships and to derail the mission of the church is slander. Slander. Slander occurs whenever someone says something, whether true or untrue, about another that results in the damaging reputation of another. Slander occurs whenever someone says something, true or untrue, about another that results in damaging the reputation of another. And here's the reality, friends. We are so accustomed to this in almost every aspect and every sphere of our lives. And thus, the need this morning for us to have a heightened sensitivity of it and a lower tolerance for it is great. I've been praying all week, Lord, give us a heightened sensitivity and a lower tolerance for slander. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges mentions slander alongside its counterparts, gossip, lying, critical spirit, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, and ridicule. All of those share one thing in common. They are all meant to tear down and to devalue another person's reputation. And so let's be, let's be clear, slander wears many masks. Most of them are subtle. Most of them are respectable. And a lot of them are found, sadly, even within Christian circles. And this week, I've, I've been praying as the Lord continues to stir my heart over the cultural issues and the cultural moment that we're facing as a church. As protests are continuing across the world, rightly seeking justice, justice to help men, uh, black men and black women receive the same dignity and respect and care as their white counterparts. Those things are rightly happening. And yet God in meticulous providential timing has us in James chapter four, verses 11 and 12. And the caution for us is that the cultural moment doesn't negate the biblical standard. In fact, the cultural moment is providing a grand opportunity for the church to uphold the biblical standard. James would warn us to be careful about what we say and to be careful about what we post, particularly engaging with those who disagree with us. And, and I want to be clear, the Bible calls us to clearly call sin, sin. And the Bible calls and commissions Christians to warn other Christians of their erring ways. And the Bible encourages us to engage in meaningful, helpful charitable dialogue, helping to better understand one another. Those things should not stop. Protests that are happening, seeking to address those injustices, those are good things that are happening. We see evil kind of spinning off from those good things, but the evil isn't merely out there taking place after peaceful protest. Oftentimes, 
It's within. And it makes its way out as we seek to engage other people and post things online. And so I just want to to say that where there is a need, we need to cautiously and prayerfully and wisely engage with others in such a way that would go the extra mile, not in understanding one another, but that would go the extra mile in seeking to preserve and to protect one another's reputations. Oh, come on, Justin, you don't understand just how warranted it was. You don't understand how quickly devolved the conversation got. You don't understand just how small that was. It seems to me that you may be making a big deal out of nothing. Well, let's see what God has to say about just how big of a deal speaking against one another really is. All throughout this letter, James has alerted us to our speech And what James is doing is he's wanting to ensure that the profession that we make about belonging to God and following Christ is consistent with the life in which we lived. And that consistency informs our speech. One of the ways it ought to be clearly evident that we belong to him is how we use our tongues. And how we use our tongues is a reflection of what is in our hearts. Chapter one, James encouraged us to be slow to speak and to bridle our tongues. Chapter three, we saw the destructive power in the tongue. Chapter four, evil is spoken from the tongue. And now here, the use of speech to criticize and to demean and to belittle and to destroy others. We'll see next week, James continues talking about how we use our speech and not to be presumptuous in our speech. The text goes on to say that, well, it's not that, uh, the text goes on to warn us to not engage in evil speech. In fact, I believe that no text makes a more serious connection between our words and our relationship with God than James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And there is something uniquely anti God about speech that tears down someone else. And yet this is the air that we breathe. Constant immersion that we experience to critical, mocking, belittling speech. You can't can't jump on the internet and read anything without just looking below in the comment section. And I just don't look below in the comment section. Politics, sports, entertainment, social media, We hardly even realize whenever we say it, we easily listen to it. We're all fascinated by it. We're drawn into it. And this text exposes just how serious it is. And again, we may be thinking James is probably overdoing it here until we remember what James' half-brother said, Jesus. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. That which proceeds out of the mouth comes from the heart, and those defile a man. And listen to what he says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. James is going to make this main point. That critical speech against another is an act of arrogance against others and an act of rebellion against God. Slanderous, defaming speech 
is an act of arrogance against others and rebellion against God. And dare I say that we, much like James' original audience, have underestimated the problem of slander. Speech that would malign someone, speech, speech that would backbite, gossiping. It's serious because it's arrogant. And it's arrogant because it assumes a certain posture in relation to God. And that's what we will see in our text. No one in this room and no one watching online will be able to escape the heart-searching depths of this passage. Your heart and your sin will be exposed. My heart and my sin will be exposed. They will be explored this morning. But like all of the Bible, this text is for our good. It's not here just to correct us. It serves to protect us. And because we're rhyming, it will also direct us. It corrects us, it protects us, and it directs us. And that's not the outline of the sermon. Slander is of the utmost significance and seriousness. And there are three reasons in, this, in these two verses that help us see that slander is far more worse than we often realize. First, first evidence of that is that slander viciously attacks God's people. Slander viciously attacks God's people. We see this in the first half of verse 11. Listen to what the word of the Lord says. Do not speak against one another, brethren. And again, we find James is addressing this key concern that's running throughout the letter, particularly this concern of speaking against. Your translation may say speaking evil against one another. In English, slander means to make a false statement about someone. James' words include that, but it isn't that narrow. It's not just a false statement, but vindicative statements, critical statements, hostile speech, any talk that seeks to put another down, any talk that seems to harm the reputation of another, any talk that speaks to spread a bad rapport, put one in a bad light, we have to remember that that type of speech will never be fully truthful because you and I don't fully know the heart of another, nor do we know the full circumstance, nor do we know the full counsel. Why do we not know that? Because we're not God. And James is going to make a beeline for us to see the connection that in our slander and judgment of another, we are assuming a role that we were never intended to occupy. The aim is to harm, to put someone down. The result is that other people begin to think lower of others. I mean, this talk, it divides friendships. I'm sure we could go around this room and every one of us could give a personal testimony as to how we have seen slander destroy friendships. It creates distance where there was once warmth. It destroys reputations. It ruins careers. It divides churches. It sows suspicion. 
When I criticize someone to their face or behind their back, when I comment about someone on social media, I, I leave someone damaged in my wake. And there's no end to the forms that it can take. Private conversations, even a conversation with someone. Conversations about someone. Conversations that I have with myself about someone. And there's just something that's so enticing about this. Proverbs speaks to this. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. He uses the imagery there because do you know what we do with dainty morsels? We love to take them in. The words of a whisper are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. We love this type of speech. And that's why that the Bible not only condemns the one who's doing it, the Bible even has a warning, Proverbs chapter 17, verse four, about those who love to hear it. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. I mean, this is what James said in James 3, that this type of wisdom, this type of behavior is worldly, it's earthly, it's demonic. This is not the language of heaven. In fact, it's the dialect of the devil. Why is this all so serious? Because did you hear who he's, he's addressing? Do not speak against one another, brethren. And then just listen, verse, the rest of verse 11. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. And then at the end of verse 12, he goes from speaking brother language multiple times to, but who are you to judge your neighbor? The repetition of brother there in verse 11 is not just for show, it's for emphasis. James is wanting them to see that who they're speaking evil against are those who belong to God. They are spiritual siblings. They are sons and daughters of the same heavenly father. They are slandering others who have been adopted by God, who are loved by God, who are destined to an unlosable perfection, who are destined for an eternal reward. And this is a wicked thing in the eyes of God to slander one of his own. And let's be clear, James isn't talking about exercising godly discernment. If James is excusing that, then we have to negate the whole letter. I mean, I went through and just tried to count the number of times that James calls out ungodly behavior, and it's a billion. I counted them all. I would encourage you to count them all. I mean, page after page, verse after verse, this is what he's doing. And so it's not the forbidding of necessary discernment. We're to look at all of life through the lens of the word of God. When a brother or sister is pursuing sin, not a debatable issue, they are pursuing sin, we go to them to help them. 
And we call out sin in a loving way because we want them to be reconciled to their God and to his people. We go to them not to harm them. We go to them to help them. Churches are called to judge and to assess false teaching. Church discipline, Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, is necessary on occasion when someone is pursuing a life that denies their profession. And so it's not forbidding this humble, respectful leaning in. It's speaking to that which tears down one another. It shares information with others, information with others whose business it doesn't belong to. The aim of slander is to harm. The aim of biblical confrontation is to help. And let's just be clear, he's addressing Christians, speaking to other Christians. But James chapter three, verse nine, says that with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And James then says, this should not be so. And so this, James chapter four, verses 11 and 12, is not the prohibition against slandering a Christian and then the license to slander non-Christians. No, this is just talking about slanderous speech. And it's, it's not sort of, if you learn how to thread the needle on who to slander, then you're doing okay. No, James is saying the heart of one who belongs to God is putting to death slander. It shouldn't mark that speech. Brothers, sisters, we should fear speaking against God's people. because they belong to God. And so I've just call you to consider your interactions. Do you realize how evil it is to sin against one another through speech that tears down? Ask your friends. Check your social media accounts. And where there's a need to repent, Brothers and sisters, repent. That's a gift. It doesn't mean that you're in trouble. It means that you're growing in grace. Leads us to the second point that James makes to show us how slander is far more worse than we realize. Number two, slander flagrantly violates God's law. Slander flagrantly violates God's law. And so it not only viciously attacks God's people, it flagrantly violates God's law. We see this in the rest of verse 11. I'll read it all. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. You see, slander is bad not only because of what it does to the one who has been slandered, it's evil because of what it reveals about the slanderer. Slander is bad, not just because of what it does to the person who's been slandered. It's evil because what it reveals about the one who is doing the slandering. And James expands this topic. Critical speech inevitably involves a judgment of another. We stand in judgment over others. 
We look at people and we find them wanting. Proverbs chapter six says that God hates haughty eyes. It means he hates high eyes. It means he hates when we climb upon the platform of our own self-importance and we then look down on others. God hates that. And that's exactly what happens when we slander. We criticize others as if we would never do that. And in doing that, we lose sight of our own sin. We forget about the places we need grace. We forget about the places we transgress the law. And the sin of another becomes so much larger and it looms so greater than even our own. This is why Jesus would say, go to your brother. But before you go, address the the log in your eye before you speak to the speck in theirs. We think we're superior to others. It's not just that we want to be their critic, but slander puts us in the place of being their judge. It's not just we're critical, but now we're judge, judgmental. And when that happens, we speak evil against the law. We judge the law of God. And James says, if you are a judge of the law, then you're not a doer of the law. When I speak against someone, I am slandering the law of God. When I judge someone else, I am judging the law of God. And to slander someone else is a flagrant violation of scripture. Most people believe that as James was writing this, he had some level of Leviticus chapter 19 in his mind. He's already quoted it in James 2 verse 8. When he was talking about the royal law, the royal law, In verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But two verses before that in Leviticus chapter 19, this is what we read. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people and you are to not act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. Yes. Address his sin. Yes but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Moses says, don't slander those that are around you. God forbids slander and speech that would tear and destroy this new nation, this new people. And that same God has the same heart towards slander for his church. This is a summation of the ninth commandment and the New Testament picks it up all throughout. Defaming speech is forbidden not only because it's a breach of truth, not only because it's a breach of love, but it's also a breach of humility. We forget who we are. We forget the right position we ought to be taking as it relates to one another. When we speak against others in this evil way, with this malicious intent, we are showing a fundamental disregard to God's commands. We are the ones who are judging God's law. By picking and choosing which one of the laws we're going to obey, 
we put ourselves over God's law to determine what we're gonna do in any given moment. And this is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter three. The birth of all slander is when Satan came up and said, did God really say you won't die? Ah, no, no, no. God knows that if you eat that, you're gonna be like him. And so do you know who God's protecting? God's protecting himself, Eve. He's not protecting you. And what do Adam and Eve do? They renounce the good authority of their loving God. They reject his word. And when they rejected his word, it was to count his word as worthless. And when you and I reject God's word, we are saying your word is worthless. What, what we mean whenever we slander is we mean the real law is not love your neighbor as yourself. It's to slander those who are deserving of it. When we slander other people, it's as if we look at God and we say, no, 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 your law doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself. We know that law. And we want the opportunity to become and to make a law unto ourselves. One pastor noted, slander is a rejection of his authority. Slander is a person's declaration of independence from God. And even more presumptuous is that we actually set ourselves we, we set ourselves up as judges over other people. What's a judge's job? A judge's job is to determine how well someone kept the law. And yet when we walk into the courtroom, there is a seat for us. And that seat is called the dock. Because we are the ones who are constantly on trial because of our sin. We are the ones that are on trial because of our inability to honor the Lord and what he has asked us to do. But there's something about when every one of us walk into a courtroom in this sort of in our mind or in a relationship or in an opportunity to slander and we run first for the seat of the judge. We forget our place in the courtroom. And that's a problem whenever we run to the seat of the judge because we are not the judge we're not to be the judge of the law. We're to be the doers of the law. That's where we belong. God makes the law and we do the law. He judges. We are on trial. And James is writing to say, friends, don't switch seats. You can't switch seats. And so I wonder what you would say about your speech What type of understanding about God's law does your speech reflect? Do you sit in judgment over it and pick and choose which law you're going to, to follow, which commands you're going to adhere to? Or do you see yourself as rightly on trial? Submissive and under the authority of all of his law. Brothers and sisters, where there's need, 
to change your behavior, where there's wrong behavior. I would call you to repent. Turn from that sin. That's a gift. Leads us to number three. Three ways in which slander is more evil than we realize. Number one, it violently attacks God's people. Number two, it flagrantly violates God's law. And number three, it ultimately rejects God's authority. It ultimately rejects God's authority. We see this in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? When we slander other people, when we slander our brothers and sisters, we are assuming the role of God. We are infringing on the rights of God. We are taking to ourselves privileges that, that belong and are reserved only for God. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. Brothers and sisters, when you and I slander, we are making a false statement about who that lawgiver and judge is. It's not me. And it's not you. It's God. He is the standard for the truth. He alone is able to save and to destroy. None of us in here can save. We are in need of one who is greater than us. And the God of the Bible is that one. He's the standard for truth. He establishes by his nature what is right on the basis of perfect wisdom and all knowledge he judges. He alone assesses lives. He alone determines ultimate destinies. And so picture this. James is seeking to just put a picture before the listener and for us this morning. The God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, who maintains the moral integrity of the universe. You, you say, oh, the universe is bad. It is not as bad as it could be were it not for common grace. The God who works every second of his all-wise purposes. That God is going to one day call all creation into an account. He's going to set all accounts right. That's the one who's the lawgiver. That's the one who's the judge. How silly are we to think that somehow that belongs to us? I think that's why James concludes verse 12 with this statement of kind of, what? Who are you who judge your neighbor? I mean, we could say how silly it is. The Bible would say how foolish it is. How silly of us to show up for even one day of our lives and to put on the judge's robe. It's really cute when a small kid puts on clothes of their, their father or their mother. 
It just doesn't fit. You can't even kind of see their, their arms and their legs. They're just swallowed by the clothes. Clearly doesn't fit. And that's cute. How foolish, though, when we seek, not in a moment of being cute, but in a moment of heightened rebellion. How silly do we look to put on God Almighty's heavenly robe, the robe of a righteous judge, as if it would even fit us. We can't even be seen under it. And yet we put it on with confidence and we put it on with pride as though it was made for me. And then we have the audacity to go and to sit on a seat that was made for God. And oh, by the way, it was made by God for himself. And once we sit on the seat, we just realize we are completely incompetent for this work. I have no, I have no earthly right to even be on this seat. Because the judge of human hearts, whoever's going to judge human hearts must know the human heart. And here's the thing. We can't even know our own hearts. Our own hearts deceive us day in and day out. And the judge who sits on this seat, he has to judge justly. He can't be crooked or corrupt. He has to have a perfect heart and perfect judgment in order to render a perfect judgment. And yet we think we're innocent, but we're not. We think our motives are pure, but they're not. We have deep conflict of interest for every case that comes before us. We fill in all kinds of blanks and we are quick to rush to judgments. And brothers and sisters, James says, it ought not be so. James says, get off of the bench that belongs to the one true judge. Take off his robes and learn and be well, well, well secure in your place. When we slander, we don't just hurt someone else. We've disobeyed God. We've ascended to the place where the only one who is authorized to seat to sit is to seat is to be seated. When we when we usurp his authority by judging other people, that is a that is an act of blasphemy against God. When we make such statements and speak out of these judgments, we're not only doing so without sufficient evidence, but we're doing so with fractured wisdom. We're doing so from a place of wrong standing. And so James takes pen to paper to serve these saints and to serve you and I, that we would be able to rightly understand that, the, uh, that by understanding the nature of slander, we will be protected. He provides conviction, but he provides needed protection. And the promise that's embedded in this instruction is such powerful slander-slaying antidote to this speech. If you are a slanderer, 
There's good news for you in this verse, verse 12. There's not just a lawgiver and a judge who's able to destroy. There's also a lawgiver and judge who's able to save. He is able to save slanderous hearts. He is able to save people who are so enticed and quickly run in to the fire or to the house that's on fire with more and more gasoline. Uh, let me just tell you, let me more defaming speech. The one true judge who rules in righteousness and holiness is also a God of mercy. He is able to save. That is your only hope. Your hope is not to find different circumstances. It's not to find better friends. No, I hate to tell you, you are part of the friendship problem. And this judge, this one who is merciful to save, he knows everything about you. 100% accurate information. For him to make a judgment, it would never be corrupt. It would never be slanderous. It would be fully informed by divine wisdom and he would be fully just in his cosmic display of justice and mercy. This is the God who judges. And how in the world is he able to save? It's not because he turns a blind eye to our sin. It's because he sends a payment he sends a sacrifice. He would send one, his only begotten son, to receive in his body on the cross all the penalty for slander and arrogant judgment of the law of, of God. Good news for you, fellow slanderers. There is a grace found in Christ that covers the stain of your slander. And slander is not merely a speech problem, it's a heart problem, which is why we sang about a fountain of mercy and love and grace that never runs dry. And for everyone who will in submission bow and go under that cleansing tide, you can know, you can know forgiveness. You can know mercy. You can also know hope and grace to not be a slanderer anymore those who are most gracious in their speech to others are those who have been most affected by grace themselves. That's the hope for slanderous hearts. And the one who receives all that Christ has done, his perfect life where he did not slander, though had multiple opportunities, he was silent in the face of injustice. What he earned in righteousness, we receive by faith. And what we deserve for sin, he takes on in the cross. And on the third day, he raises bodily. In the event that we are tempted to question whether or not we really can trust and believe, the resurrection says, believe. He's good for every word. And for those that run to that cleansing flood, God is not going to expose you if you come to Jesus. He will cover you. And if you don't, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I would just plead with you. He offers himself to you this morning. You can't earn what he offers. You can't earn it, but you can receive it by trusting him. And so come to him. Draw near to God. And the promise is that he will draw near to you. Not as your righteous, holy judge, but as your merciful, 
loving Savior. If you have not responded to that message, I would plead with you, run to grace. Run to Christ. Turn from your sin and believe today. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you that our vision of this kind of God is a vision that will condition our vision of ourselves and it will condition our vision to those around us. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39 puts before us a vision of God that reminds us of who he is. He's the one who saves and he's the one who destroys. And if you and I do not have this vision of God, then we will not have the problem of slander fixed. The God who destroys is also the God who saves. Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. And Jesus makes clear that he was the lawgiver. He was also the fulfillment of the law. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus makes clear he is the judge. It was Christ who said in John three sixteen that he died to save us. He felt misunderstood. He was falsely accused. And yet with the authority of the judge himself, he laid all of that down, didn't open his mouth. And so perhaps in the moment you think, ah, I need to get out what I want to say to someone else. And though this may slander them, I have to get this out. Remember as you struggle to hold back things that you want to say on the basis of what you think or what you know, remember that Jesus, knowing all, did not open his mouth and fight fire with fire. He's given us so much mercy. And we have a responsibility as Christian brothers and sisters to look to the left and to the right of us and to, to see sin and to call sin out. But that's just it. We look to the left and to the right. We don't look down below us. Derek Prime said, the knowledge of our own failings makes us more and more hesitant about expressing any form of criticism of others. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before the faults of other people. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before the the faults of other people. And so let's be a church that calls out sin, but let's do it not to harm, but to help. Not to inflict hurt, but to love. And so that's the invitation that James extends. And if I can just leave you with two closing questions to consider as you think of application uh, uh, not even questions, two statements. Number one, let the gospel inform your speech. James 4, 11, 12, not only corrects us and protects us, but it also directs us. Let the gospel inform your speech. When the gospel comes to you in mercy and the cross frees you from condemnation, you have been accepted on the basis of Christ's work. You have nothing to prove. You have no reputation to protect you are then free to show mercy. And when you and I are in touch with our own sin and his mercy, we will want to be merciful. And so show others mercy in your speech. Being judgmental is a whole lot easier than being gracious 
do the hard work of being gracious in your speech. Let's show other people how the gospel transforms proud hearts and slandering lips. And then number two, submit your words to God so that he will accomplish his purposes. Part of how we image God is through our words. That's why it's so serious when we use our words for evil. And so brothers and sisters, let's commit to, to no longer tear one another down, but instead build one, one another up. That's what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29, specifically, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. James 4.11 and Ephesians 4.29 are twins. Let's let our speech be used by God. Let no, absolute no corrupting talk come from our mouth. Corrupting talk is poisonous. And so let's measure our words by this standard. Does it build up? Does it give grace? Will it be a blessing? And would God say this? Let's cherish each other's reputations. Let's say, I've got your back and you've got mine. And I've been praying that we would be a church that speaks the language of grace. That we would be a church that gives glory to the one who shows us mercy. That we would be a church who assumes the worst about ourselves and who assumes the best about others. That we would be a church who entrusts judgment to God and who finds joy in pointing others to that great hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we have used speech and words that are meant to declare your glory to be a platform to trying to declare our greatness. Forgive us. And there may be relationships that each of us have in our lives. There may even be relationships in our church family that are fractured because of hurtful speech, divisive, critical, gossiping speech. Would you allow repentance to take place in the days ahead? Would you allow reconciliation to take place? Lord, we want to honor you And so help us. Show us how we're to respond. In this moment of silence, speak to us. Your servants are listening, we pray.